As we begin then a series on the home, I want us to be perfectly clear. All of us have family problems. All of us have family issues. If you're sitting out there today and you feel like, golly, she must know about my family. Or maybe Eric decided to do this sermon series because he heard about something that was going on in my family and he wants to address it. If you feel that this is some way singularly pointed at you, it is only because you do not know the rest of us well enough. Because if you knew our lives, if you knew our families, then what you would recognize is that all of us, it may be, it may be one step removed from our immediate family, from the people who live in our household, or for that matter, it may be very well within our household. But you take it one step further, and I guarantee you that there's not a person who is sitting here who wouldn't say, yeah, we've got some serious family issues that are going on in our household. There, there is nothing new, and there is nothing unique about dysfunctional and broken homes. Nothing. The story of such homes is biblically very old. Very old is the story of broken households. Literally, our Bibles are teeming with home problems. So, therefore, no idealizing today. Okay? No idealizing. No sitting here thinking, he's only talking about me. No sitting here dreaming about somebody else's family. No idealizing, no wish dreaming today or for the next couple of weeks as we talk about the family, but also no quesera sera as it relates to the family. No saying, well, you know what? Family life is just impossible. It's so complex. Who can possibly understand the dynamics of what is going on in family life? Whatever will be with the whatever when it comes to our homes because there is nothing that I can do about this or that relationship. Remember that the working assumption of the book of Proverbs is that investment pays dividends. Hard work brings reward. Good tilling of the soil leads to a fruitful vine. That is the disposition of Proverbs. It is not a guarantee that that takes place every time and in every situation and in every home. But it is the idea of Proverbs that in general, this is the way things work. And so you have two things that I want to say, and they apply to this sermon, but they apply to the whole series. No idealizing and no giving up. Those two things when we talk about the family. Today's uh, message is super simple. In fact, I think it could be one of the most simple sermons that I've ever uh, preached for us. That said, it is foundational and it is something of an introduction. What is the theme of today's sermon? To quote John, it is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. In particular, that God has created the home and the family as the starting point 
as the launching pad and as the place where love and support and care for one another is first and foremost expressed. More particularly today, and just to, to focus it just a little bit, the love that I'm speaking of, I, I kind of used in the announcements when I talked about it, is a buttressing kind of love, a support kind of love. Now, just imagine for a moment, especially kids, if you don't understand the word buttress, imagine uh, a building or perhaps an old church building. And oftentimes, an old church building will have a, a wall, and then it will have a support that goes to that wall from the ground. That is a buttress. It may, it may be like a triangle that goes from ground and then up to the wall. Or it may be, if any of you have uh, been to cathedrals in Europe, like Notre Dame, uh, for example, a flying buttress. So if you remember Notre Dame, it has a series of flying buttresses. They support the walls when the weight of a roof comes down upon those walls so that the walls don't push out. The family as a buttress. Another uh, illustration that has been in my mind this week, perhaps because we spent some time on Maryland's eastern shore, every once in a while you will see a piling and the piling is secured, piling for a pier that goes down, a telephone pole-like thing that goes down. You'll see that it is secured not only by being driven down deep into the sand, but it is secured by a series of other pilings that lean up against it, that are set up against it around it to protect it from the shifting tides going in either direction, a piling that needs to be buttressed, a piling that needs to... Uh, be supported. Those images have been in my mind this week of a family, as has the image of a phalanx. Phalanx, thinking about that in the life of a family. Now, a phalanx is an ancient Greek military formation. And the idea of a phalanx is where you gather together soldiers so close together that they are physically or at least appear to be interlocked, interconnected with one another, so that in effect, your, your arm is defending the person who is next to you, and your shield is not only protecting you, but your shield is protecting the person that is next to you as well. The phalanx depends upon this interconnectedness. Every individual depends on being connected to the other, being supported by the other, protecting and defending. The home is a support system. The home is a support network wherein we should, in love, care for one another. So that's simple, right? I mean, that's simple. That's pretty st straightforward. Uh, you don't have to be a pastor to talk about the home as a support network. But, but, Cain killed his brother. The Bible doesn't begin with smashing family success. It begins with brother smashing brother. Cain murdered his brother. I, I think when John is writing his letter to the churches and he has given them, again, this is our New Testament reading, it's printed in your uh, bulletin, he gives them this command that you've heard from the beginning, we ought to love one another and not be like, and, and it's just so you don't think this is easy. You have to remember what happens on the very opening pages of scripture. 
Cain kills his brother. It is easy to say that we should love and support one another in our families. However, when it actually comes down to brass tacks, when it comes down to life in our families, we not only find it to be the launching pad for love, we find there strife and bitterness and enmity and jealousy that exists between us. Why did Cain murder Abel? Because Abel's deeds were righteous and Cain's were evil and he didn't like it. You know, in our families, we would like to imagine, we would like to imagine that Cain would have recognized that my offering wasn't accepted. And Abel would have offered good advice as a brother, and Cain as a brother would have listened to that good advice, hey, here's a way to make your offering acceptable to God. And Cain would have said, well, thank you very much. That's very good. It's very helpful for me to hear that advice from you, brother. I will now make my offering better. The Lord will be pleased, and all will be well. But Cain murdered his brother. Envy and strife and jealousy. And just to put this in context, this is the same thing that happens. I mean, I admit that that's on a grand scale when it leads to physical murder taking place on the opening pages of Scripture. But it's what happens when you bring home a report card, or clarification, when your sister brings home a report card. And it's really good. And it's got A's on it, and it's got well done's, and she's getting atta girls from your parents. And your report card is not quite as good. I'm telling you, our instinctive reaction, and I'm not telling you, I'm sorry, you know this as well as I do. I don't mean to, sorry. This is what we all know. Our instinctive reaction is not to rejoice with our sister. Our instinctive reaction has become, I resent that my sister is doing better than me. I'm jealous of the fact that she is receiving the praise of her parents and I am getting the I that says, you ought to be doing better. You should be being more disciplined in your studies. The seed of Cain is evidenced in us in those very moments. The seed of a murderous spirit is evidenced in us when instead of rejoicing in the good of another, we get envious at it. We get jealous at what they have done. And we come to bite and to devour one another. The canishness that is in each of us is in evidence when we feel like we're contributing to the welfare of the family, we're contributing to the love of the family, to the work of the family, more than somebody else, we start to bite and devour at that very person that we're trying to serve because they won't pitch in. And Proverbs says this wisely, better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. We all know that we should support one another in love. But the lesson of Cain is that for sinful creatures, the natural disposition of our hearts has become complicated. 
because we are made in the image of God, there is something about us that recognizes, even in a fallen state, that we ought to love one another in a family. We ought to care for one another in a family. That seems to make sense that we ought to do that, that this ought to be a starting place, a launching pad for these uh, things of love. But that natural disposition is now complicated by another natural disposition. We're not only a launching pad for love, we have become ground zero for the manifestation of strife and of hatred and of enmity and of a murderous spirit. That is to say, the home has become ground zero for those things. You cannot, we cannot underestimate the deadly power of a trajectory that now exists in our families, that has existed in our families ever since Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. The proximity that we have, the expectation on those relationships will cause us to devour one another inside of a family. I can't tell us, I can't sit here and tell me, I can't tell you, I can't tell us, just stop doing that. Stop biting and devouring one another in your family. Just take time to do what is good. Take time to be thoughtful and to care for one another. Remember this, that even God, talking, I'd like to imagine, is whispering in the ear of Cain. Whispering in the ear of Cain, sin is crouching at the door, brother Cain. You must master it. You must master what is going on in your heart right now, or it will kill two brothers. Right? That's going to end up killing two brothers. But even that, even God speaking directly to him, telling him what he should do, did not change what took place. Now, if God telling Cain, don't do that, didn't stop Cain, how could a pastor telling us, love one another, care for one another, don't devour one another, how could that help us? Could it stop the tendencies that exist in our home? The law of God, which says you should love one another, will not deliver us. It will not improve our homes. That law that says in your homes you should love one another and you should care for one another will only exacerbate and expose the problem that exists in our home. The hope that we have is that God has done what the law could not do, weakened as it was by our flesh. God has done what the law could not do, what the instruction love one another could not do, God has done. Because the law had been weakened by our flesh. And the point of this is to say to us, proverbial advice will not save us. The best proverbial advice will not save us. 
Posting the Ten Commandments on the wall of your home will not save you. Cross-stitching the best Proverbs on the wall of your home will not save you. A Thomas Kincaid painting with the best proverb on it will not save you. None of those things will save in and of themselves. We need a new heart. We need a new heart for our own salvation. We know that. But we need a new heart for family reconciliation as well. And it is exactly that promise that ends the Old Covenant, that ends the Old Testament. I put it on the front of your bulletin. If you just want to look at the front of your bulletins, uh, those are the last verses of your Old Testament, Malachi 4, 5, and 6. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. A restoration of individual hearts and a restoration in the heart of families is promised in the new covenant. Both of those things are promised in the new covenant and linked together. What did God do to accomplish that, to fulfill this promise? Well, I'm going to tell us the story of salvation but in brief, but listen to the familial language of it. God the Father sent his beloved son who loved and obeyed his father. That son, like Abel, was killed by the seed of Cain. But through his death, he has brought many sons and daughters to glory, and he is therefore not ashamed to call us brothers, to call us brothers and sisters. That is all familial language. It is not too much to understand redemption as the love of a father and son reclaiming and reforming a family that had been decimated by strife. It is that love the Trinitarian love, the love of the Father between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is that love which God gives to us that makes us the children of God. And that is what we are. And that love gives us hope for our families. Now, within that covenant of love, Within what Christ has done, within what the triune God has done in creating this family, this household of his people, the law becomes helpful once again. The law becomes an aid to us, and Proverbs becomes a help to us as well. Proverbs becomes for us wisdom from God within the covenant of God. By itself, it would only condemn. Within the covenant, which is it's always given to us in that way, as a matter of fact, within the covenant of grace, then it becomes for us an aid, instruction in how to love. So we can turn to it for advice, recognizing that ultimately in Christ, 
then this becomes helpful and beneficial instruction to us. So I've kind of set two things before us, and, and I just want to say those in a sentence. Two things are set before us about this series. Number one, no idealizing, and number two, and, and related to that, no giving up. No idealizing and no giving up. And number two, no just bald, pithy advice to be given. Pithy advice, the best aphorisms, the wittiest aphorisms won't help your family. But in Christ, within the covenant, then there really is a way that we can grow in the love expressed within our families. There really are things that we can take away from this book and say, yes, Lord, help us to apply those things in the lives of our families. And we really can expect rightly to grow. So with that, just briefly, and it's just going to be briefly then, those two things introduced the whole thing, and I counted them in this sermon. I want us to consider a few of the lessons from the passages that I selected for us today about how we can love one another, how we can support one another, how we can buttress one another in the family. Here's what we've got. First one is this. Think covenantally. Think covenantally, which is ultimately what I've just been talking about. We've got to think covenantally about our families. Our family is a family within the family and the household of God. God has established his covenant with us. Within that covenant that God has established with us, our families are covenanted together as well. But thinking covenantally is thinking familially, and our families are prioritized in the direction, in the in the outworking of love in this world. Prior, uh, Proverbs is quite willing to prioritize and to say to us, the primary place where you are to exercise the commands that are given here, where you to show the outworking, the exercise of your faith, the love that we're talking about here, is within our families. Uh, friends are important. If you are in middle school or you are in high school right now, you, you think that friends are the most important thing in your life, because most of us did at that point. Friends are important. Christian friends are important. And especially brothers and sisters who have covenanted together in the church, all of these things could be secondarily extended to the church as well. But scripture and Proverbs envision the family, the home, as the first place that is covenanted together and where these things are to be exercised and practiced. And so you shouldn't feel guilty. You shouldn't feel guilty about prioritizing the life of your family. Now, that can be overdone. Uh, to the exclusion of other things, and that ought not to be, but you shouldn't feel guilty about prioritizing the family. Here's the reality. At one time or another, everyone in the family is going to be part of supporting each other or the one who is particularly in need of support. As you look at these verses here, what is evident to us is that not only do husbands support their wives, not only do husbands provide for their wives, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life up for her. But likewise, wives support husbands as well. 
seeking the good of the husband, seeking the welfare of the husbands. Husbands and wives support one another. Parents support kids. Siblings support one another. A brother is born for adversity, someone who can help. And then children and guilt grandchildren get in on the supporting as well. Look again uh, at the front of your bulletin. This is from 1 Timothy chapter 5, the section dealing with widows. Let me just read it for us. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them, that is the children and grandchildren, first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Where is the first place you should exercise godliness? Is it to a stranger? No. Is it to your neighbor? No. The first biblical priority of where you are to exercise godliness and exercise love is to those who are of your own household. Now we can take this one step further. That passage in Timothy continues on with this statement. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's a significant priority that is given to us from Scripture that says, if push comes from to shove, if I've got a choice between helping someone in my family and someone outside of my family, and I can't do both of them, help the person who's in your family. Support the person who is the closest to you within your family. That is the instruction of God. That is the will of God. Now, our families are not to be insular, right? We're not supposed to do that and not care about anybody else and not care about church and not care about friends and neighbors, obviously. But it is say this is the priority that we have. So first of all, don't be afraid to. In fact, you have to practice thinking covenantally about support. Who do I have support responsibilities towards? I have it towards my family. The next thing is this, actually do the good. Practice the support. Don't just think about it, but practice the support of your family. In those First Timothy passages that I read for us regarding widows, the support that is expected in a situation from the children and the grandchildren, what kind of support is Paul talking about? Is Paul urging there? Well, it's financial support. It's the work of life. It's the work of running a household. It's the physical care. It's the decision-making that we'll lose eventually, we'll lose our ability to do that. Actually practice the physical care that it takes to support one another in the family. To look at another passage, the uh, passages from Proverbs chapter 31. The virtuous woman doesn't only say nice things about her husband, she doesn't only think nice thoughts about her husband, the virtuous woman does good to her ha husband. The, uh, the, I know these aren't numbered, but about six phrases up from the bottom of the readings. She does him good and not harm all the days of his li life. She looks well to the ways of her household. She does not eat the bread of idleness. She does not just talk a good game about supporting and caring for her family. She actually does that. She actually takes the times 
time to work with her hands. I didn't print it out, but uh, verse 13 in Proverbs 31 says, she works with willing hands. Wives, children, grandchildren. Let me apply it specifically to uh, young people. Working with willing hands to support people in the household. Husbands, do you work with willing hands to support in the household? Children, do you work with willing hands to support what needs to go on in your household? Think about it. Secondly, do it. And third, from the passages that are before us, loving and supporting the members of our family comes not only through thinking and doing, but it also comes through communicating. Now, I know that's just a very general word, and of course, in Proverbs, communicating means all sorts of things. It means teaching, it means communicating the faith, it means exhorting, encouraging, correcting when that is necessary. But I, I'd like to draw your attention to the final phrases that I listed here uh, from Proverbs chapter 31. Think about this in light of communication. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. The fact, and, and I think we've got to hear this carefully, and, and let me just say this, let me say this very particularly for our church. I, I think this is an area where our church struggles. I'm not exactly sure why, but I think it's an area where we struggle. So, so listen to this application. The fact that we have a biblical responsibility to care for and to nurture and to do things for one another in the family does not therefore mean that it ought be a thankless job that we do. It's easy to equate that, right? If, if you've got a responsibility to do something that is biblically given to you, perhaps we think, well, I don't need to thank someone for doing what they are supposed to do. Now, maybe we don't process it quite like that out loud, but there may be some mechanism inside of us that thinks that way, and yet it's not to be a thankless Task. Now, obviously, the passage that I just read references wives in particular, but you could shift that around to any of the members of the family. But woe to us, woe to us, husbands and children. Woe to us if we do not bless and thank our wives and mothers. Woe to us if we just assume that, if we just think, well, I, she's a mom, that's what she's supposed to do. She's my wife. That's what she's supposed to do. The Bible tells her to do that. You can imagine that in the role that I have as pastor, I uh, see a lot of funerals, lead a lot of funerals, and listen to a lot of eulogies. And in eulogies, many great things are said, noble things. Can I just say, and you probably heard this a hundred times, I, I wonder, is that the only place they've been said? Were they said before that? Were they a part of ongoing, regular conversation? Now, 
please don't mishear me, every day shouldn't be a eulogy uh, to your wife or to your husband. That gets a little tedious, a little over the top, but a thankful spirit within the context of the home, regular, ongoing communication in the home. Proverbs 31, 26, she opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. An open mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness. Keep open lines of communication to support one another. The way we supported one another in my family for years, and I just lost one of them, is I, I think I've said this before, is we call it the check-in. The phone call that is just, hey, I'm just calling to check-in. And I lost a check-in partner uh, in my life. I lost a support partner, one to support and one from whom I got support at a check-in. Keep open lines of communication with one another. This is the commandment that you have heard from the beginning, that we ought to love one another. We ought to support one another. We ought not coddle one another. That's another sermon we can talk about. This is not talking about coddling and not talking about people not growing up. And I say to you parents, I say to you heads of household, be warned, supporting one another does not happen naturally. Your kids are watching. Your kids are watching how you interact with your parents. They're not just watching how you parent. They're watching how you interact with your parents. Do you support and care for your parents? They're also watching how you interact with your siblings, their aunts and uncles. Be warned, parents, heads of household. Siblings supporting one another, supporting each other in the household, that does not happen naturally. It would be nice if it happened naturally in a fallen world. It does not happen naturally. You will inevitably see in your household envy and bitterness and strife and jealousy between your kids. You must not let it sit. You cannot say, well, Boys will be boys. Siblings will be siblings. You can't let it sit. You've got to get hold of it. You've got to confront it when you see it. And you've got to challenge it with another and a better vision of caring for one another, of supporting one another. They will naturally bite and devour one another. They will naturally fight. We've got to get hold of it with the gospel to turn that to the other direction and to give them a vision that is better than that. We can't allow it to descend into warfare and resentment or silence. If it has, take a look at your household this week, take a look at your home this week, take one step. You and I know in our homes something is broken. Some relationship is damaged right now. Take one step. Make one reach-out step this week to try and support somebody else, to try and recover something. Your heavenly brother, Jesus, was a brother who was born for adversity. Lean on him, and in him, lean on each other. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the instruction that comes to us from your word, the exhortation that comes to us from your word. Help us to follow you. Help us to love you with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name.
Amen.